As we celebrate Mother's Day here today on Graceful Truth, we do so out of 1 Samuel chapter 1. Join us as we take a look at the life of Hannah. Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. This is Graceful Truth. Welcome to our broadcast. Our teacher and pastor, Stephen Converse, will take us to 1 Samuel chapter 1 today. It's there that we catch up with him on a special Mother's Day edition of Graceful Truth. Mom, nobody does it better. It's the title of today's program. Won't you join us? Here now with today's broadcast of Graceful Truth, once again, Pastor Stephen Converse. Good morning. Happy Mother's Day. Uh, today we're going to talk about moms. Mom, nobody does it better. But I do have a problem with Mother's Day. It's not that I don't like Mother's Day or that I disagree with it or that I dread it. My problem is simply this, that I don't know how to preach a good Mother's Day sermon. Mother's Day is perhaps, for me, one of the most difficult sermons to preach all year long. Why is it so hard to preach, you might ask, on Mother's Day? Because while Mother's Day can be a very happy, joyous day, it can also be a very sad day. It can be a day filled with pain and grief. Not everyone looks forward to Mother's Day. Maybe you've recently lost your mother and you're experiencing the pain of that loss. Maybe you've lost a child as a mother and your heart grieves on Mother's Day. Maybe you're having difficulties with your mother, or your mother wasn't the ideal mother that we all like to preach about. And if you have, maybe you have bad memories of your mother. Maybe you have some guilt feelings about your own motherhood, and you have child problems or marriage problems. Maybe you were never able to have children, and Mother's Day isn't a joyous occasion for you at all. Maybe you never really had a real mother. Maybe you were raised in a foster home or by relatives. Maybe you're a single mom and are struggling how to be a good mother to your children. See, we have to understand that not every home is like the Cleavers. Not every home is like the Brady Bunch, or Father's Knows Best, or even Ozzy and Harriet, the Nelson family. Maybe your home is more like Ozzy Osbourne family than Ozzy and Harriet Nelson. Some of you have been raised in good Christian home, and we should praise God for that by wonderful Christian parents. I want to encourage each of you today, but especially the mothers, each of you have been affected by motherhood in one way or another, either good or bad. Everyone here has a mother, had a mother, is a mother, is married to a mother, or at least knows a mother. Motherhood has affected us in one way or another. Well, I have a message for you moms today. Before we get into the, the message, throughout the years as we grow up, we have different images of our mothers. At four years old, we're saying, my mommy can do anything. At eight years old, we're saying, my mom knows a lot, a whole lot. At 12 years old, we conclude, my mother doesn't really know quite everything. At 14 years old, we're saying, naturally, mother doesn't know that either. At 16 years of age, mother, she's hopelessly old-fashioned. At 18 years of age, that old woman, she's so far out of date. At 25 years of age, well... She might know a little bit about it at 35 years of age. Before we decide, let's go get mom's opinion. At 45 years of age, I wonder what mom would have thought about that. 
at 65 years of age, we conclude, wish I could talk it over with mom. See, moms, your influence is a lasting influence. It doesn't go away. But Mother's Day messages can be a very dangerous subject to speak on because everybody has a different idea of what a mother's role should be. But the fact is, no matter how you cut it, moms, nobody does it better. You're the most influential, most powerful role on planet Earth. That's the role of a mom. There was a Sunday school class during their program before the whole church, and all the kids were lined up in front, and there was this little girl all ready to recite her lines, and poor little girl couldn't remember what she was supposed to say. I mean, you can imagine standing in front of 50 or 100 people, all those eyes staring at you, it'd be very easy to forget. And mom was right in the front row, and mom was growing frantic and kind of embarrassed for her little girl. And so mom started mouthing the words for her. And that didn't seem to work. It, the little girl just didn't get what was going on. So finally, mom, down there, she whispered the words to the little girl, leaning forward out of her seat. And she said, I am the light of the world. And the little girl drew back her shoulders and she beamed and she raised her hands and she said this, my mother is the light of the world. Well, you know what, moms, there's a lot of truth in that statement. Nobody does it better. You're the most influential, most powerful role on planet Earth. No political, military, education, or even religious figure can compare with the impact of a mom. Now, if you're blessed with a, a great mother, you're going to reap the benefits of that the rest of your life. But you know what? On the other end, if you've been neglected in some respect, those wounds will never be erased. You will struggle with those, limp along with those for the rest of your life. Because whether it's for good or bad, a mother's mark is permanent. I saw a mother's card the other day that I liked. It said, now that we have a mature adult relationship, there's something I'd like to tell you. And you open the card, and on the inside, here's what it said. You're still the first person I think of when I fall down and go boom. See, a mother's mark is permanent. You can even watch sporting events, usually football, and you see these big hulk of a men in their uniforms on the sidelines and the camera pans by, and inevitably along the bench, one of those big macho guys grins into the camera widely and mouths the words, what? Hi, Mom. Because a mom's influence is lasting. It's the most powerful, influential role on planet Earth. Mom, nobody does it better. But it's also can be a difficult task. The expectations of moms have never been higher than they are today. Moms are expected to hold down a full-time job, spend quality time with the children, keep the house neat and clean, and be as sexy and desirable as they were for their husbands on their wedding day. That's a pretty tough bill to fill. You know, little kids pick up on the pressure that mom is under. One little girl, while she was sitting on her father's lap in the living room there looking through the family picture album, and it came to the pictures of the husband and wife on their wedding day. And the little girl turned to daddy and she said this, Daddy, is that the day that you got mommy to come and work for us? See, being a mother has never been any more difficult than it is today. It's tough. Peggy Lee wrote the words to this song. The lyrics say this, I can rub and scrub till this old house is shining like a dime. Feed the baby, grease the car, 
and powder my face at the same time. Get all dressed up, go out for a swing till 4 a.m., then lay down at 5, jump up at 6, and start all over again, because I am woman. Well, Peggy Lee, nice lyrics, and that may describe the life of some moms, but living that way, you're not going to live very long at that rate. But we're living in a culture where moms are caught in a squeeze play. It's difficult. And today I want to give you a picture of a woman, a positive picture of a woman from Scripture, Hannah of the Old Testament, because I want to encourage you today. Reminds me of one pastor, associate pastor, his first time in the church to get up and read Scripture, and it was on Mother's Day, and he was to read 2 Timothy chapter 1, the passage which says, I have been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am now persuaded lives in you also. I mean, it's a lovely homage to Christian motherhood, and it's very appropriate. It's read a lot on Mother's Day in churches. But the poor young associate pastor got nervous, and when he stepped up into the pulpit, instead of reading from 2 Timothy, he read from 1 Timothy. And to make matters worse, he began by saying this, I, I would like to dedicate today's reading to the wonderful women in our congregation. And then he began, some of you have wandered from the faith and have turned to meaningless talk. You want to be teachers of the law, but you do not know what you're talking about. The law is not made for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, for those who kill their mothers and fathers. Not surprisingly, shortly thereafter, the young associate pastor felt a call to a different avenue of ministry. Today we want to look at 1 Samuel, just briefly. 1 Samuel chapter 1. I want to read this text for you because we see the faith of a mother in this text. 1 Samuel chapter 1. Now there was a certain man of Ramathame Zophim of the mountains of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, and the son of Zuth, an Ephraimite. And he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. And this man went up from the city yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And also the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord were there. Verse 4, and whenever the time came for Elkanah to make an offering, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion. For he loved Hannah, although the Lord had closed her womb. Remember that. Verse 6. And her rival also provoked her severely to make her miserable because the Lord had closed her womb. So it was year by year when she went up to the house of the Lord that she provoked her. Therefore she wept and did not eat. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart grieved? Am I not better to you than ten sons? So Hannah arose after they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat of the doorpost of the tabernacle of the Lord, and she was in bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. Then she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, 
If you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall come upon his head. just want to stop there. You might think that's a little odd. No razor will come upon his head. Well, in their culture a couple thousand years ago, if you were going to be a very religious person, a very committed person to the Lord, they never cut your hair. It was part of a Nazarite vow. It meant wherever you, you went as a person, as a male, your long hair, your flowing hair was a sign to people of you had a special commitment to the Lord. And so what she's saying is, Lord, if you just give me a baby, I'm going to give him back to you so that he can be yours. And I'll never cut his hair as a symbol of the fact that he actually belongs to you. Now, there's a couple things I want to draw out here quickly in our passage this morning. Because Hannah didn't have an easy life. First of all, she was childless. That was a horrible social stigma in that day. And when women didn't have, couldn't have a child, they never blamed the thought of blaming the male. They always blamed the female. And they, they basically concluded God's favor was not upon that person. And it was very important in that day to reproduce children so the name, family name could continue. And so at times when one wife couldn't produce any children, as in Hannah, her, her womb was closed, well, they would just go get a second wife. Now, God allowed that to happen, but that's not what he recommends. That's not what he commands in Scripture. Here, Scripture records it. And so there's obviously a rival between the two wives. Who could have the most babies? And it's kind of weird for us to think of that, but that's exactly what was going on here. And not only was she childless, but she was ridiculed. Hannah was ridiculed. And you can see here, the woman, the, her, her uh, counterpart in the marriage there, Panina would, would mock her. He'd provoke her. And ultimately, out of her frustration, she left the table one evening and went out into the house of the Lord. They called it the place where they worshipped. And she stood there praying. And as she was pl- praying and pleading with God to give her a child, she was so wrapped up emotionally in this that her lips were moving, but there was no sound coming out. And the priest who was sitting nearby saw her, and the priest actually accused her of being drunk. <laughs> I mean, is there anything more painful than being accused of something falsely? That hurts. So she was ridiculed. She was childless. But she was also criticized. She was criticized in her culture. God's favor wasn't upon her, they concluded. But we also see here a positive note. We see that she was loved by her husband. If you read through the first two chapters of 1 Samuel, you'll see that this man, Elkanah, really loved this woman. And the message that comes to us as men here this morning with wives is that the world is going to be hard on the women of this world. All kinds of expectations are going to be placed on them. Pressure from here, pressure from there to go places, to do things, to to look a certain way. And we need to be supportive of our wives, of our mothers in the day and age we live in. Well, ultimately, God answers her prayers, and she conceived a child, and his name was Samuel. The reason she named him Samuel is because Samuel in the Hebrew sounds a lot like the Hebrew phrase, which means from the hand of God. And she knew that God had granted her this child. Now, a couple quick principles. Principle number one. If you read about Hannah, you'll see, first of all, that she was a woman of faith. It says there that every year, year after year, she'd go into the house of the Lord, and she would go there and fulfill all the religious rituals that were common in her day. 
Now that's significant because here is a woman who, by according to the standard of her culture, was not loved by God. God had supposedly closed her womb, and yet she still went, rather than have a bitter heart toward God, she still went and did what was expected of her. She worshiped, she prayed, she continually went before the Lord. That takes a lot of faith. I mean, it doesn't take a lot of faith in our lives when everything's going great. But when things aren't going so great, it takes faith to put that faith into action and continue to do what God expects us to do. She was a woman of prayer. She was praying in verse 10. She was praying in verses 26, 27. In second, or 1 Samuel chapter 2, the whole beginning of that passage is a prayer that would later be used by Mary, the mother of Jesus, as a model prayer. And so here we see that she was a woman of faith. And I think that we really need to understand that if we're going to be a lasting influence, Mom, be a woman of faith. We can't afford to take the risk of playing games with our children's eternal condition. Hannah was a woman of faith. Secondly, second principle quickly, is your children are on loan to you. Hannah knew that. That's why Hannah said, God, just give me this child and I'll give him right back to you. You see, when somebody loans you something that is priceless... For you to use, you better take care of it. You don't want to give it back to them all broken and beat up. You usually want to give it back to them in better condition than they gave it to you. And so remember that your children are on loan to you from God. And that's what Hannah understood. Be a woman of faith. Understand that your children are on loan to you for your safekeeping. Hannah was a prioritized mother. She was a prioritized mother. Look at 1 Samuel verse 21 of chapter 1. When the man Elkanah went up with all of his family to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord and fulfill his vow. It says, verse 22, Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, after the boy is weaned, I will take him and present him before the Lord, and he will live there always. See, mothering was a priority for Hannah. Moms, nobody does it better. And you need to understand that. You need to understand that from the culture is that the Hebrew women nursed their children sometimes up until the age of three years of age. Now, we're not suggesting that you do that in our culture today, but the reason behind it is interesting. The reason behind it was because they knew how important those first few years of life were to a newborn child. And we're living in a culture today where the first few years of life are, becomingly, are becoming increasingly unimportant in terms of input. And it seems that through the 60s and the 70s and even the 80s, it's fashioned this idea that, well, you just have a baby and then you, you just go back to your job and, and let somebody else raise the child. I want to argue that's not the wisest thing to do. As a result of those influences in our culture, more women have traded in their apron for a briefcase. And I mean, I understand it's, it's tough financially. Sometimes we have to work. But somewhere along the line, we have begun to forget how vital it is for a mom to play a significant role in the life of her child, especially in the first several years. Edward Ziegler, a professor of psychology at Yale and authority on child care, he says this, it's scaring everybody in the field that a whole generation of children are being raised in a way that has never happened before because they're not being raised by their parents. They're being raised by a child care somewhere. See, Hannah was a prioritized mother. She practiced prioritized mothering. She stayed home from the sacrifice, it says. That's important. The sacrifice in their system of thought to the Hebrew people was very, very important to them. When we want God's forgiveness, 
we turn to him in prayer and, and, and we say, hey, God, will you forgive me? And he says, sure, based on the work of my son, Jesus Christ. Well, in that culture, the way they sought God's forgiveness was by making sacrifices. And this woman, Hannah, knew that she couldn't really receive forgiveness for her sins and failures unless she went to the house of the Lord and made sacrifices. So she had a choice to choose forgiveness or to choose what? To mother that child. And she chose to stay home. And she chose to mother that child. That's profound. In our culture, so many men are putting pressure upon the women to go out and get a job. And we need to be a little more supportive of allowing them to stay home and be what God has called them to be, a mother. Do you know that when babies are born, babies are unattached to human beings? They're unattached. I mean, they can't control their movements. They can't control their bodily functions. They can't see very well. They have no idea why they hurt when they're hungry. Loud noises startle them. Unless, of course, they're making the loud noise. <laughs> they don't know how to process information. They're in a learning stage. They don't know how to relate to people. I mean, in a way, children are born with no conscience. Because when they're born, have you ever seen a child who felt badly about the pain after the birth? Well, boy, sorry, Mom. I know I caused you a lot of pain uh, coming out of there. Sorry about that. You don't see that. Do babies feel badly when they mess their pants? No. Usually they smile. Do they feel bad when they wake you up in the middle of the night? No. They're self-centered, self-serving little manipulators that will use any means possible to get what they want when they want it. I mean, that's the truth. I mean, they're cute little babies, but that's the truth. And that's because they're born as unattached human beings. The good news is they don't stay that way. The second thing is, I want you to understand about babies, is babies learn personhood. And here's how they learn it. Professionals tell us that there's a cycle that they go through. And this cycle is repeated every four hours. And it was built into them by God. So they learn to organize their thoughts, their values, their system of beliefs, and all that. And it's repeated hundreds and hundreds of times in the first six months of life. And once it's repeated over and over again, it locks in their first associational patterns to understand what they ought to do and what they ought to not do, what they ought to feel, their obligation as human beings. The whole process is unconscious. It just goes on automatically. But they learn personhood. Four stages. A baby has a need, hungry, uncomfortable, whatever it might be. He expresses that need through rage. He screams, he yells, he cries. He gets released for that need. Mom picks him up or feeds him, changes him, develops a sense of trust. Well, that cycle is repeated every four hours in a newborn. And that cycle continues thousands of times during the first year of life. That baby quickly begins to recognize familiar people from unfamiliar people. It begins to seek contact from the people that are meeting their need. That infant becomes extremely sensitive at that time in life as, a pat as this pattern and cycle is repeated over and over and over again. And what happens, it learns to develop trust in others, in self, and in humanity. Well, thank you for spending time with us here today on Graceful Truth, the ministry of Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. It's our prayer here at Graceful Truth that God would reveal His grace to your hearts through the teaching of His Word each week. And we trust you're currently involved in a Bible teaching church in your area. If not, we'd love to have you come and visit us here at Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. We meet each Sunday morning for our praise and worship service at 10 a.m., we offer nursery care and Sunday school classes for our children up to grade five. 
And if you would like to encourage us here at Graceful Truth, please give us a call at Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. Our phone number is 650-366-9923. That's 650-366-9923. We meet at 2225 Euclid Avenue here in Redwood City. And directions are on our website, gracefultruth.org, or again, simply call 650-366-9923. That's 650-366-9923. And again, we'd love to have you join us for worship. Simply call for directions or go to our website, gracefultruth.org. While you're at our website, make sure to check out the resource materials available from us here at Graceful Truth, including past programs of Graceful Truth that you can download for free. Gracefultruth.org is where to go. And while you're at our website, don't forget to download our mobile app. New and improved and ready to use, whether you're securely donating online or taking advantage of the podcasts on your mobile phone, simply go to iTunes or Google Play and look for Grace Bible Church Redwood City-CA. Or stop by our website, gracefultruth.org, and follow the prompts. If you're writing to us, our address is 2225 Euclid Avenue. That's 2225 Euclid Avenue. We're here in Redwood City. The zip code is 94061. And again, our phone number is 650-366-9923. That's 650-366-9923. We thank you for spending time with us today and trust we'll see you next week at this same time for another broadcast of Graceful Truth with Pastor Steve Converse. (music) 